the book of Zechariah. Zechariah the prophet. This prophet is one of the most difficult prophets and books of the Bible to interpret. Zechariah the prophet. He is one of the most difficult from beginning to end. There are a few paragraphs and verses that are quite straightforward and clear, such as the one that we'll study on our first day today. However, it will be rare. There will be many visions, many symbols, apocalyptic terminology, uh, visions of the future, obscure and hard to interpret verses, passage, imageries, symbolisms, many of them. That's the way Zechariah is. And this is the universal sentiment of commentators and scholars of the Bible and especially the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah would be on the level of the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, at least the last half of the book of Daniel, starting from chapter 7 to 12 of the book of Daniel. These will probably be the most difficult parts of Scripture to interpret carefully and accurately. And because of that, in our study, we're going to take it slowly. We have had, usually, the custom of taking a chapter at a time, but because we want to understand this book as best as possible, we will take it one by one and slowly. That is, a vision at a time which may encompass uh, just a handful of verses or as many as 10 verses, a vision at a time, and that will be within a chapter or um, a part of a chapter. That's the way we'll handle the rest of the study of the book of Zechariah. And also, we should note that Zechariah is among the top quoted books of the New Testament. Zechariah the prophet is one of the top books of the New Testament. He would be behind books such as Genesis, Deuteronomy, Isaiah, in terms of, and the Psalms, in terms of quotes in the New. But he's still up there since he is in this book of the 12 prophets. He's not a very large prophet. He is 14 chapters just like the prophet Hosea is 14 chapters, who starts this book of the 12. But in Zechariah's case, Zechariah is actually longer than Hosea by a few verses. Well, in his prophecy, it was not an ignored book. In other words, the apostles and Christ did not ignore this prophecy, even though it was difficult, or it is difficult, at least to us, to understand they cited it quite often behind those other books of the Old Testament. Then, there are a few famous passages and allusions from the book of Zechariah in the New Testament. We will just highlight a handful of them from the book of Zechariah that are noteworthy, and these are passages you may have heard quoted. Our first example is Zechariah 9.9. First, the quoted passages. Zechariah 9.9. Zechariah 9.9 is quoted in Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15. Matthew 21.5 and John 12.15. So Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. 
Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a wild donkey. That's 9 9. Another one is chapter 12, Zechariah 12, verse 10. Zechariah 12:10, which is cited in John 19, 37. And Revelation 1.7. John 19.37, Revelation 1.7 quotes Zechariah 12.10, which says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. And the third quote, famous quote, comes from 13.7. 13 verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Zechariah 13.7 is quoted in Matthew 26.31 and Mark 14.27. Matthew 26.31 and Mark 14.27. These are the most known quotes from the book of Zechariah. However, there are a few other sayings that you may have heard of that are taken from this book. Though we have heard of them, we don't often associate them with the book of Zechariah. The first one is Zechariah 2.8. Zechariah 2.8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Then chapter 4, Zechariah 4, 4, 6. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And then, one more we find in chapter 14. Chapter 14. 14, 9. 14, 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Zechariah 14.9 Alright, now, what about the setting? Zechariah, along with Haggai and Malachi. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These last three prophets are prophets of the post-exilic period. Post-exile. That is, after the exile of the kingdom of Judah, at the time when 
Jerusalem was destroyed along with the whole nation and especially the temple of God, which was the first temple called Solomon's temple or the first temple in terms of references to history. In the Bible, it's not called either one of those necessarily. But we identify that temple as such. And from our study of Haggai, we learn that Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries and the two of them prophesied to the people to encourage them to finish building the second temple, the second temple which we call Zerubbabel's temple, and then later we called it Herod's temple, Zerubbabel's temple or Herod's temple. And these two prophets are named side by side in reference to the building or rebuilding of the temple. We have it in Ezra chapter 5, Ezra chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, so forth. And this has to do, chapter 5 has to do with resumption of the temple, building of the temple. Also, Ezra 6 Ezra 6.14, Ezra 6.14, we'll read 14 and 15, Ezra 6.14. And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. All right, so that's the setting. He is a contemporary of Haggai and encourages them to rebuild the temple. Though Haggai was primarily preaching about that, and his book is only two short chapters, Zechariah, though he does do similarly, he covers many more subjects, especially because he's a longer book. He's got 14 chapters. He covers many subjects. And he dates his prophecies accordingly, and this matches the biblical evidence and historical evidence. It says in Zechariah 1.1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius, in the second year of Darius, which is in accordance with Haggai, also who preached in the second year of Darius. He dates that oracle there. He dates it again in verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, in the second year of Darius. And then his last dated oracle is in chapter 7, verse 1, when he says it's in the fourth year of the reign of King Darius, which means that these... Prophecies span a period of about two years that Zechariah received from the Lord. Having said that, the first few chapters of the book of Zechariah, that is from chapter 1, verse 7, chapter 1, verse 7, through chapter 6, verse 8, 1, 7 to 6, 8. These verses comprise eight visions eight visions that Zechariah received 
on one day or in one night. One seven dates the first one, and then the rest of them are not dated, which means that once he saw one, he then saw another, and this sequence continues for eight visions. Next time we will see vision one, which is chapter one, seven to 17. Also, we should note that primarily the focus of Zechariah, as well as the rest of the prophets, is the kingdom of Christ. They all preach Christ. And we will see so in various places throughout this book. For example, we did quote or read Zechariah 12.10, which is about Christ, 9.9, which is about Christ, 13.7, which is about Christ, and there will be several other places in the book where Christ is the focus. Christ is the object. He is where history is headed. The focus on the coming work of Christ. Okay, so let's not lose focus of that when we read his oracles, especially his visions and obscure statements. Now, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, saying, Verse 1 dates it to the second year of Darius. Now, this would be likely the first day of the month, and they have a lunar calendar. So this would be equivalent to our 27th of October, 520 B.C. 27th of October, 520 B.C. And... Notice it also says, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah the prophet. This is the typical way of announcing an oracle from God. In this year of the reign of this Persian king, Darius, this word of God came to Zechariah. Here he's identified as a prophet. The prophet identifies himself as a true prophet of God. We also see he's called the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. In the book of Ezra, the two places where he's mentioned, he's called the son of Iddo, probably because Iddo was more known or the one who's uh, more responsible for Zechariah the prophet, for raising him. But this name, son of Berechiah, is important because in the book of Matthew, Christ says that it was this Zechariah, this is Zechariah, Matthew 23 and verse 35. He says that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. Verse 36. Now, this is the clearest Reference to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, we have. Christ in Matthew 23, along with this here. And even, again, he's mentioned as such in 1 verse 7, Zechariah 1 7. The son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. 
So, though history and though the Bible does not record the murder or martyrdom of Zechariah, we have to take Matthew twenty three thirty five that way. That is the likely and best interpretation of it. Though it's not recorded, Jesus is telling us what we did not know before he told us. Unless, of course, in the days ahead, somebody discovers some ancient uh, record that this prophet Zechariah was murdered between the temple and the altar. That could happen. It's possible, very possible. Well, because of this difficulty that it's not recorded in the Bible, some have said that the Zechariah we have here is not this Zechariah, since there's no record of it in the Bible, but another Zechariah in the book of Second Chronicles 24. However, that Zechariah, though he was a prophet, he was the son of Jehoiada, Jehoiada the priest. He was the son of Jehoiada, not the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo. And everybody knows Jehoiada because Jehoiada was a godly priest who guided uh, the young king uh, until his death into righteousness. He guided the king into the ways of righteousness. So it's not likely that that is the Zechariah. It's this Zechariah that Christ means in Matthew 23. We have to make these clarifying statements because skeptics of the Bible who want to undermine it say that there's a contradiction. Well, there's no contradiction. There doesn't have to be a contradiction. Only if one is fault-finding and looking for a contradiction, they can find a contradiction everywhere. And by the way, we can find plenty of contradictions in their own life and statements. That's easy to do. The hypocrites, the skeptics, need to learn some humility. Okay, then let's read the rest of this paragraph, verses 2 to 6. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. First, we see in verse 2, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Now, who does he have in mind here when he says, your, with your fathers? Because he does mention them again in verse 4 and in verse 5. But then in verse 6, he says that some of them, or they repented. Verse 6 also mentions fathers, and then they repented. Well, he's speaking in verses 2 to 6, firstly and primarily of the unrepentant fathers, ancestors, unrepentant ones before the exile. 
That's why the exile occurred. The unrepentant fathers, therefore the exile occurred. Their nation was destroyed. Their livelihood was destroyed. Their families were destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. Everything was destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians in two stages. So he means that in verses 2 to 6. He's angry with the unrepentant fathers. However, in the last half of verse 6, he's talking about the repentant fathers. The repentant fathers. And those examples would be in Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel, are they not ancestors of Zechariah and the people? Of course, because they lived. uh, Well, in the case of Daniel, he was, Jeremiah was, and Ezekiel. Ezra and Nehemiah, they are more in the period of Zechariah. But still, they are repentant. They are repentant and calling the people to repentance. And that's what he means in the last part of verse 6. Let not the expression fathers or your fathers be confusing. First, he reminds them of the unrepentant fathers. So what does God think of the unrepentant fathers and what did they do? First, he's very angry, very angry with them. And he was very angry with them. He told them again and again to repent and they wouldn't repent. I'd like us to first see how He was angry with them and gave them plenty of forewarning. But we also need to establish that this anger of God is not restricted to the Old Testament. Okay? So first, that he was very angry. We go to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36, 11. 2 Chronicles 36, and verse 11. He was very angry, but we have to see in context, did he have good cause to be angry, good reason to be angry? And the answer is yes. 36, 11. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke for the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear allegiance by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Furthermore, all the officials of the priests and the people were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations, and they defiled the house of the Lord, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans who slew their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king 
and of the of his officers, he brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon. And they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days of its desolation, it kept Sabbath until 70 years were complete. They rebelled against the Lord, and the Lord was right to be angry. Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations chapter 2. After the fall of Jerusalem in 586, Jeremiah writes this lamentation, this lamentation or lament, this sad song or dirge is what he writes. And notice what he says about God. Lamentations 2, 1 to 4. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up, he has not spared, all the inhabitants, all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire, consuming round about. He has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his wrath like fire. Repeatedly, his burning anger against the people because of their sins. They deserve what they got. Now, this description of God being very angry is not to be restricted and constrained to the Old Testament. It is certainly a New Testament belief. And we should first notice that it's a New Testament belief in the heart and mind of Christ. Because... Everybody wants to portray Jesus as gentle Jesus and sappy Savior. But he's not that. He's not that in the way they mean it. Look, for example, at Mark 3. Mark 3. And it's verse 5. Mark 3, 5. We'll read from verse 1, 1 to 6. And he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And after looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, 
and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began taking counsel with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You see how unflinching they are, how hard-hearted they are. He's, it actually says hardness of heart. He's grieved at their hardness of heart, but he's also angry. He's, he has the, these double emotions. He's both angry and grieved at their wickedness. Then, turn to John 2. John 2, 2, 13, 2, 13 to 17, especially verse 17, 2, 13. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changer seated. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. What kind of zeal is it? It's not excitement. It's not joy. It's anger. That's the kind of zeal he has to do the will of God and to throw the rascals out of the temple. <coughs> he didn't say it in so-called modern, polite, courteous ways. He didn't even do it in modern, so-called uh, polite and courteous ways. He didn't do it like that. He made a scourge. He drove them out. He overturned their tables, poured out their coins all over the place. He made a big mess and rebuked them. That's what Jesus did. He did it in anger. There's no doubt he did it that way. And also, when people finally receive the wrath of God, whose wrath will it be? Will it be the wrath of the Father? Yes. But also the wrath of the Lamb. Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Revelation 6, 16 and 17. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? No one is able to withstand the wrath of the Lamb. Nobody. He's angry. Why? Because of unrepentant sinners. When they have such a stubborn heart, Christ is angry at them. He's wrathful against them. And this wrath, famously, we know Romans 1.18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Correct? We know that verse, but there are many such verses in the New Testament of God and Christ and his apostles in different ways and circumstances being angry, wrathful. The book of Galatians is essentially... Paul, the apostle, incensed that the Galatians would believe a different gospel. He's very, very incensed. He's uptight, irritated in that book. The whole letter is that way. And other examples exist as well. So let's not restrict and let's not let others, when we evangelize, say, 
The anger of God or wrath of God is for the Old Testament. It's not true. It's against all people, whether Old or New Testament, whether in this country or another country, everyone who will not repent of sin. And while they remain in unrepentance, he is wrathful against them. All right, now, verse 3, Zechariah 1, 3. Therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me, declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Here in this paragraph, God repeats this phrase, Lord of hosts, just like he did in the book of Haggai. In verse 3, he says it twice. He says it again in verse 4. And then he says it again in verse 6. The Lord of hosts. So don't look at God as a puppet. We cannot look at God as easily manipulated. We cannot look at God as a grandfather, a sugar daddy. Candyman? No, look at him who controls the armies of heaven and earth. He is the great commander of the armies of heaven and earth. And commanders of armies are not supposed to be playing games. That's not what they do. Commanders of armies, they don't pass out candy. Commanders of armies, they are ready to inflict punishment on people who would seek to harm them. That's what they do. And that's what God is. And who is the captain of the hosts of the Lord? It is Christ. Christ is that, according to Joshua 5, 12 to 14. Christ is the captain of the armies of God. Okay, then verse 3 uses this simple enough expression. Return to me. And also in verse 4, return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. And in verse 6, they repented. Now, what does the word return mean? Well, when we're talking about physical and spatial matters, we're talking about going from one direction to another direction. That's in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, to return means to repent to stop going in the wrong direction and turn around, make a 180 turn and go to God. That doesn't assume that they once were believe, um, believing in God. That's not the issue. That's not the use of this word return, that they were once believing in God, then they don't believe in God, and they go back and forth, they wobble here and there, unstable. It's not like that. That's not necessarily what he means or what the prophets mean by this word return. Or even in the New Testament, it's used less often there, but it is used, such as in 1 Peter 2.25. But you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls, which means they repented. And that's what it means here. We know it has to do with repentance, a spiritual sense, because of verse 4. Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. To return is to repent. To repent is to turn away from sin. To turn away from sin. Reject it, have nothing to do with it anymore. To return is to repent.
since we're in Zechariah, let's just move over a few pages to Malachi. Malachi 3 and verse 7. Malachi 3, 7. He uses this expression also. Malachi 3, 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? As though God never taught them. They, they have a, uh, a tendency in Malachi to spite God by spiting the messenger of God, pretending ignorance, that they don't know any better. But that's not true. And Malachi doesn't uh, let up. He rebukes them whenever they challenge him. So Malachi uses the same expression. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. He also charges them with turning aside from the statutes of God and not keeping them, like Zechariah does. Zechariah verses 4 and 6. They don't obey the Lord. Repentance was uh, a common theme of all the prophets. Starting with Moses and ending with Malachi, repentance or turning from sin was a constant theme of them all. It was also a constant theme of John and Jesus and all of the apostles. John the Baptist, Jesus our Lord, and all the apostles. They preached repentance time and time again. They constantly preached repentance. We have to preach repentance because that's the one thing that nobody wants to preach. That's the one thing nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to say to another, you are a sinner. You need to turn. That's wrong. That's evil. That displeases God. You deserve the wrath of God. Nobody wants to say that. But those who possess the true word of God, they will say that. In fact, false prophets say the opposite. False prophets preach peace and they say you can have peace without repentance. But God says, I'll hew you in pieces without repentance. That's what God says. I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets, meaning by the words of the prophets. God's going to chop them up. The word of God is a living and active sword. Hebrews 4.12. So God will hew the people in pieces with his sword if they won't repent. They want true peace, then they have to repent. Remember, it's a New Testament concept, a New Testament belief to preach repentance. Matthew 3.2, John said, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4:17, Christ in his first public words said, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 verse 38, he says, "Repent." Acts 2 and verse 38. Then after they healed in Acts chapter 3, healed the lame man. Acts chapter 3, 
he also preaches repentance. He says 3.19, Repent therefore and return, that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Also, 5.31, Acts chapter 5, verse 31. They preach this after or, or while they were challenged, challenged by the, the authorities. Acts 5.31 He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. To grant repentance and forgiveness of sins. He preached the same. Then, Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 and verse 18. 11, 18. That these disciples rejoice in this fact. And when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. Are these, uh, so you see these examples? They, they continue. Let's look at uh, two more examples in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, verse 21. 20, 21, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we find 2620, Acts chapter 26 and verse 20. But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. In those last couple of verses, we see that repentance is for Jews and Gentiles. There is a false theology that teaches repentance is only for Jews. Gentiles are merely required to obey uh, or to believe. To believe, Gentiles are to believe, Jews are to repent. Not true. No such distinction is in the Bible. And repentance does not merely mean change your mind about some knowledge of the Bible or some knowledge of God. It doesn't mean that either. It actually means to turn away from sin. And because they didn't, they were punished. Also, verse 3, Zechariah 1.3. You see this sequence here, return to me that I may return to you. When God says that I may return to you, he's going to change his disposition toward them. He's going to change his attitude toward them once they repent. Now, this is the sequence of events to receive the blessings of God after repentance has occurred. That's what he means here. If you want to be blessed by me, if you want my presence, if you want my Holy Spirit to dwell in you, if you want eternal life after you die, you want me to sustain you, provide for your daily needs now, 
then you need to repent. That's what he means by that I may return to you. However, he does not mean that the ball is in your court. You take the first step and then I will make up the difference. This verse and similar verses are used by those who believe that man takes the first step toward God because he's not completely dead in trespasses and sins. He still has grace and free will. So he must first exert his grace, prevenient grace, they call it, and free will, take the first step to God, and then God will make up the difference. That's not what he means in Zechariah 1.3. He does not mean that at all. He's talking about the blessings, both spiritual and physical, that one receives because of the presence of God in one's life, because one turns away from sin. That's what he's saying. Then verse 4. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets proclaimed. Do not be like your fathers. When he's saying do not be like your fathers, he means the wicked fathers, the evil fathers, the unrepentant fathers. He doesn't mean don't be like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah. He doesn't mean don't be like them because those are godly examples. Of course he wants them to be like the godly ancestors. In fact, Zechariah will make allusions or and quotes from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and others, and Moses. He's going to do that throughout. So he's not talking about that. When he says, do not be like your fathers, he means your wicked fathers. And this reminds us of Ezekiel 18, 1 to 18. Ezekiel 18, 1 to 18, Ezekiel told the people that the soul who sins will die, 18, 4. The soul who sins will die. Then he proceeds to give examples of a righteous father and wicked son, and then wicked father and righteous son. And saying that each one, each man, is responsible for his own sins. Therefore, they could not, they should not say, well, all of our fathers, all of our ancestors were this way, so I'm this way. So don't blame me. They can't do that. They can't do that at all. Ezekiel 18, 1 to 18. You must not do that. No excuses. Why can't they say, we're going to be like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses? Why can't, couldn't they say that? Why do they have to use the excuse that our ancestors, they influenced us to be this way? Also, verse 4, the former prophets. In this context, the former prophets simply means all of the predecessors of Zechariah. Zechariah prophesies in 520 BC. By this point, the only ones left in the Old Testament period, in terms of the books of the Old Testament, will be 
Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Haggai, and Malachi. These are the only remaining books of the Old Testament. All the rest of the books of the Old Testament, including Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they have all preceded Zechariah. Even Daniel precedes Zechariah. So they are the former prophets. And having said that, he, he's saying, you had sufficient and ample testimony presented to you to call you to repent. Or they did. They did, and you have it in print. They had it both orally and literarily, but now you have it in printed form. All of these former prophets from Moses onward, you have them accessible to you. So don't be like your ancestors, your fathers, who wouldn't listen. I'm telling you now by the word of the Lord, exactly in conformity with the message of the former prophets. He mentions these again in 7.7 and 7.12. and 7.12. Former prophets. Let's read the one in verse 12 because this adds something to who they were. 7.12. And they made their hearts like flint so that they could not hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit Through the former prophets, therefore great wrath came from the Lord of hosts. He's still in this passage talking about the ancestors, the fathers, and they made their hearts like flint and they would not listen to the words of God. Sent by whom? By his spirit through the former prophets. So the former prophets, Zechariah, he verifies that these former prophets were inspired by the Holy Spirit, which we already know, such as Micah 3.8. Micah says, on the other hand, I am filled with the Spirit, and so forth. There are many prophets who were self-aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit inspired them. Zechariah confirms that in 7.12. So these wicked fathers had the audacity to challenge and reject the Holy Spirit. So then verse 4 also says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return now from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. Return or repent now. Today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 7, 2. They should repent now. Also, we see here that he doesn't pull punches in what they did. Evil ways and evil deeds. He doesn't say mistakes, weaknesses, preferences, personalities, upbringing, environment, your atmosphere. He doesn't say anything like that. He hits them straight between the eyes and says, your evil deeds, your your evil ways, your evil deeds. 
He is a good doctor, a good physician, diagnosing the problem because he has to report accurately to the patient what exactly is happening. And that's what he does without mincing words. Now, having heard that, he says, but they did not listen or give heed to me, declares the Lord. They didn't listen at all. Jeremiah had to deal with this. Jeremiah 6. Jeremiah 6. Not the only one who came across roadblocks, but let's see three places in Jeremiah where he actually quotes them. Jeremiah 6, Jeremiah 6, 17. And I set watchmen over you saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. The sound of the trumpet, this is like Ezekiel 3 and 33, where Ezekiel the prophet is a watchman to the house of Israel. So again, in Jeremiah 6, 17, Jeremiah the prophet and the godly priests and godly kings and godly citizens of the nation, they would sound the trumpet, but the reprobate would say, we will not listen. They wanted nothing to do with it. Chapter 11 is... Jeremiah 11 and verse 6. We'll read 6, 11, 6 to 8. 11, 6 to 8. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt, even to this day, warning persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. All right, now here God accuses them of having the stubbornness of his evil heart, right? In 11, verse 8. But let's see their audacity. Chapter 18. Chapter 18. We'll start 18, 11, 18, 11, and 12. So now, speak now then, speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. O oh, turn back, each of you, from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say, It's hopeless, for we are going to follow our own plans and each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. Look at that. They are shameless. They are so audacious enough to say, it's hopeless. We're going to follow our own plans. Each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. They actually call their own hearts stubborn and evil. Yes, wicked people do that. If you pay attention to the, what they say, they admit 
that what they're doing is wicked or evil or stubborn. They say that. They will say it. And they say it all the time. Well, verse 5. Verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Where are they? What happened to them? And the prophets, whether he means the true prophets or false prophets or both, it's obvious that prophets and ancestors don't live forever. People die, right? People die. But why do people die? And why do some people die prematurely? Well, people die. Average is 70 or 80 years. Psalm 90 says that. If they have an average lifespan of 70 to 80 years, why do others die earlier than that? Why do they die when they're 1 or 10 or 20 or 30 years old? Why do people die prematurely? Because of sin. That's what he's saying here. You, you want a long and happy life? You want to die in peace? You want to die like that? Or do you want to die because somebody is chasing you with a sword and he's chasing for your neck to chop it off, chop your head off your, your, your neck? Where are they? Don't you see from the utter devastation all around you that these people don't live forever and they're not living a happy, peaceful, calm life? Speaking of that, Zechariah does speak of a time in the opposite way. Look at chapter 8. Chapter 8, verse 4. 8, 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Isn't that what grandparents want to see? Grandchildren playing in front of them? And the streets are so safe that they can use the open space of the streets to play? And Zechariah is saying, don't you see that that's not happening? So why don't you repent? Verse 6. But did not my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your fathers? Then they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. Didn't God's words announced by his servants, the prophets, see who the prophets are? When God says go, they go. When God says speak, they speak. When God says do it, they do it, right? That's why they are his servants, the prophets. They have a desire to please the Lord and the Lord alone. And also, we as Christians are also called servants or slaves. Our only master and Lord is Jesus Christ, according to Jude 4. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. John three, thirteen. So we should also say, 
Whatever God says, whatever God wants, I will do with diligence, with zeal, with eagerness, do his will as his servants, the prophets did. So when they delivered the people, uh, delivered the message of the Lord to the people, it was a twofold message, right? Believe and repent and be blessed by God or disobey, don't believe, don't repent and be cursed by God. This expression to overtake your fathers, Moses warned when the nation was established in Deuteronomy 28, he warned the people this. Deuteronomy 28, 15. After explaining the blessings of obedience, he takes up the rest of this discourse to explain the penalties for disobedience. And in 28.15, he says, But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Come upon you and overtake you. And in 45, 28, 45. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. The prophet Zechariah is referring to this initial warning Moses delivered to the people. It did overtake them. They were finally wiped out as a nation. However, when there is destruction, the remnant repent. When they see their lot, the remnant repent. And the last half of verse 6 is dealing with the remnant. The remnant acknowledge that the Lord of hosts purpose to do to us in accordance with our ways and our deeds, so he has dealt with us. They don't blame God. They don't spite God. They don't reject Him. They don't continue in unbelief, but they acknowledge that God did exactly as He wanted. As we said before, three good examples and easy to remember are Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel chapter 9. In these three places, where they express that they are getting what they deserved and they are praying a prayer of repentance. Lamentations 2.17 says, The Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Lamentations 2.17 We also need to be like the remnant. We see sin and punishment all around us. We see misery all around us. It should wake us up from stupor and stupidity. It should wake us up and repent just like Ezra, Nehemiah, Daniel did, just like Jeremiah did, and all the rest. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says.
Amen.